actually the person who kind of inspired me a little like a little bit to kind of go into psychiatry was my great aunt and my great aunt has schizophrenia she just turned 100 not too long what? ago congratulations making, thank you making her the oldest person with schizophrenia that i know <laughs> <laughs> because t- people with schizophrenia typically don't live as long but she lives with my with her sister my grandma who's 102 and they both live in damascus syria right now which to yeah. me just tells speaks a lot about like human resiliency and like how kind of life goes on regardless of what's been going on. That's Dr. Ahmad Adi. He was born to Syrian parents and he went to medical school in Saudi Arabia. Now, he's a fourth year psychiatry resident at Duke. And next, he's going into forensic psychiatry. Forensic psychiatry is basically kind of like the study of psychiatry as it pertains to legal matters. So like all the overlaps between mental health and legal issues. And I'm interested in pursuing it because I'm interested in immigration law. So like working on mental health evaluations for people who are filing for asylum or people who are here, like the immigrant crisis that's going on right now and seeing if there are like any mental health elements that can help these people. That's how I ended up choosing that. This is Voices of Duke Health. I'm Karishma Sriram. Ahmad decided to bring his fellow psychiatry resident, Dr. Heather Kim, to talk about, among other things, what it's like to be immigrant physicians. Heather was born in Korea, and then she grew up in Canada. And for a while, she really wanted to be a behavioral geneticist. So off... I went to the furthest I could get away from my parents, which was McGill, so in Montreal at the time. Um, And then I started my degree in biology, um, and I was working in a lab, looking at a lot of flies, ended up in a fish lab, took out a lot of fish brains, and just like day in, day out of that, um, even though the research I was doing was something that I thought I would want to do, I just wasn't happy. And I think there was one disastrous incident in the lab fish basement when a water main broke and just came through oh, all of the tiles no. and it just killed all of my fish that oh I had at the time. God. Oh no. And it was a sign. <laughs> and it was super gross. So it was a holiday. So I was like one of the only people left in the lab that were like supposed to be taking care of all these fish. And I just had to like scoop out all of these dead fish. And, oh and, it, and it was like tropical fish. So it was like very warm. Um, just dead fish soup everywhere. And I was like, this is not what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. Then after I graduated, I actually ended up working as a a behavioral therapist with autistic kids, and I loved it. Um, And I started thinking, like, you know, maybe I can just do my boss's job. I bet I can do that. So Heather took the MCAT, applied for med school, and ended up in this faraway place, North Carolina. I had no ties to the area. I've never lived, like, Milwaukee was the most south I've ever lived. Um, so, so, uh, and I was like, well, whatever, my favorite band is here, the Mountain Goats. I love the place, you know, why not? I'll just rank it high and see what happens. And then on match day, I'm like, oh, now I guess I'm moving to North Carolina. And it was a pretty foreign place for Ahmad too, coming from the Middle East. People here seem to be very curious to know more about like my background if they find out that I'm not from the area, which is not something that I typically kind of 
immediately disclose to like patients that I meet, but sometimes if they ask and I tell them, everybody is very interested to know a little bit more about where I'm from. It's an opportunity for people to get to learn more about that part of the world that um, that they usually don't end up seeing like in the news or in the media. Unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that comes out of the Middle East in the news and media is not the most pleasant things yeah. um, to read about out there. And and yeah, and I'm always kind of um, I'm happy to tell people a little bit more about like where I'm from or how how I somehow ended up in Durham, North Carolina. <laughs> I think what I um, get uncomfortable with is when people assume that I'm not from here or that like I must have like grown up somewhere much more exotic. Um, like, where are you from? Milwaukee. Where are you from? Canada. <laughs> no, where are you really from? It's like, I don't know what you want me to say. It's like, okay, you want me to say that I'm Korean. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just when people are just curious about it, I don't think that's yeah. as harmful as like, no, tell me what you are. <laughs> right, that's true. And assumptions about where they're from matter. Malicious or not, those assumptions can lead to implicit bias. This is something that Ahmad has been studying during his time at Duke. Specifically, like looking at it using patient show rate as an indicator for, for intake appointments, because in some of our clinics, our names are available for the patients. Like they know that it's the resident clinic, but they know that it's going to be with Ahmad or with Heather or with other people. And in some other clinics, our names are not there. They just know that they're going to the resident clinic. And I tend to have higher show rates at those clinics than the, peop- than the clinics where people do know what my name is before coming in. Wow. So that's something that hopefully we'll get to look at some data about before I leave here. And perhaps yeah. I'll hand it to another resident to, to look at it some more. Yeah. How does that make you feel? Um, that's a very That was a great psychiatry question. You really learned a lot on that Yes. I love it. I mean, I found it. I honestly find it fascinating. I mean, there's a little part of me that obviously does not appreciate kind of being um, judged solely because of my like what my name or what my name sounds like. But I still do think that it's a very fascinating phenomenon because in most in most instances of implicit bias that's like in the literature, it actually occurs in a more unconscious level. So people are not always very aware that they're doing these things. And it happens both on the kind of like the patient side and also on the clinician side. And, and again, people are kind of like not very conscious about it. And the last time I, I kind of gave a short talk about this, like to our residency program, I kind of tried to really emphasize the self-care part of this is that like really, truly don't try to beat yourself up on this. This is not something that you're consciously choosing. It's very important that we know this, and it's very important that we study this a little bit more to see where this is coming from and if there's anything to do about it. At this time, self-compassion is important too, like to not beat ourselves up too much. So obviously, like, you are more than just, you know, the place that you're from or the color of your skin tone. Yeah. But how often do you feel that um, either patients or like people at Duke see you as your race or ethnicity? I think it's been kind of interesting within therapy interactions because I've had some um, Asian patients or East Asian patients, Indian patients uh, who have a positive transference of me mm-hmm. from the beginning uh, because they assume that we share the same values. Like, I must be the good Asian daughter because I went to med school, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of assumptions about, like, oh, 
you're probably on my side or like you probably understand why I'm mad at my husband or my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I don't necessarily correct that um, because I think it helps with the therapeutic alliance. That said, sometimes those assumptions are really noticeably negative. In the ED, when yeah. someone's agitated, I might get racist comments, yeah. um, but I don't really hold it against them because it's an incredibly traumatizing and um, stressful experience. Right. right um, yeah. I want to say, like, I've noticed it more not so much in the sense that I'm from the Middle East, but it's, but I've actually noticed that more from my other kind of minority identity of being in the LGBT group. For example, I've had a patient once in my clinic as I was um, kind of typing up some stuff for her, she asked me whether she was like, oh, do you like theater? And I, and at the time, I responded with, I'm neutral towards theater. But, and, and I kind of, kind of figured out what she was trying to say. But it, it was one of those, like, why do you ask? Like, in a very psychiatry way. It's like, I'm curious why you're asking me this. And her response was like, oh, there's just, like, you reminded me of, like, my son's friend who also really liked theater. And I kind of, you know, from your socks and whatnot. I like wearing kind of colorful socks to my, to, like, generally, it's like my little kind of accessorizing thing that I do. Um, so, so there were instances like that that has happened. But it's it, it, what has really helped me is to kind of look at it more from a curious lens rather than kind of get offended by it or get upset by it. In the sense that a lot of these people who are making this are generally speaking, not doing it to like offend you or insult you. They just genuinely, truly don't know how else to do it. So in those moments where um, you do face these comments from patients or maybe, you know, just like family members or anything like that, um, what like motivates you guys to continue just giving them the benefit of the doubt? Like it's really hard to be givers like that all the time. Right. I guess there's certain several kind of factors to consider. One is whether this happened once or is it kind of like a repeated thing that's been going on. And and another thing to look at is actually also the nature of the comment itself. Like when someone says like, oh, do you like theater because your socks are colorful? It's a little different than when someone kind of frankly makes a homophobic comment or like a racist comment or something. And responding to those is going to be very different. So when someone kind of says something that's a little more a little more on the offensive side, then it kind of puts a little bit more pressure to address it like at the moment. I've honestly found it helpful as a um, kind of like as a, as a time f- to be able to set a different example for those patients for being like, yes, I am I am a foreigner. I'm from the Middle East. I'm also gay, but but I can. I can still be a good provider. Like I'm still like a reasonable human to hang out with (laughs) or like tell about your problems kind of thing. It definitely does wear on you um, when people assume certain things about the quality of your clinical care because of Mm -hmm. the visible or other observable traits that you have that might peg you as a certain identity group. I think I have to usually assume the best Mm -hmm. positive intentions because that's what protects me and that's what keeps me able to keep going. It doesn't help me to be a better provider to like kind of try to figure out like the real intent or like are they really being racist or not. Mm. Um, But I feel like there's a lot of pressure on 
doctors um, to be forever compassionate, like mm-hmm. endlessly giving, always be okay with things. And Ahmad agrees. He thinks, yeah, there is this expectation that doctors are always having good, positive feelings toward their patients. However, in reality, that's actually not true. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. But being able to, as a physician, also kind of understand that sometimes we don't like the people that we're treating, and that's part of being human. Mm -hmm. And so long as we recognize that feeling, we own that feeling, and we don't use it to do bad things, Mm -hmm. like in our clinical care, um, then that that is very valuable. There's actually a term for that, countertransference. It's essentially when a provider has an emotional reaction triggered by their patient. Countertransference is actually very helpful. It's a very helpful diagnostic tool in psychiatry, and it can be a helpful diagnostic tool in other fields as well when you're like, this person is making me feel angry. Why are they making me feel angry? It must be because, for example, they're tugging on this feeling or that feeling. And you can reasonably make an assumption, of course, you need to talk to your patient about this first and explore it, but you can reasonably make an assumption that if they're doing that with you, they're doing that with other people. Mm. And that becomes a target for treatment, is to kind of be like, all right, I noticed that when you say this, I get upset. Does that happen with other people? Let's talk about this. Um, just kind of like hearkening back to something that we talked to Dr. Moncat about, um, just about like how um, physicians and patients have more than just like a physician-patient relationship. Mm-hmm. It really is like a relationship and an interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then kind of um, going back to your point, Ahmad, about how sometimes like having the kind of like counter-transference and like maybe sometimes like not great feelings about a patient can be helpful. Yeah. I guess in my brain I'm like I wouldn't want that in a relationship though. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of curious um, how much does it either like detract or add to the relationship? Um, Generally speaking I I find that um, being able to kind of bring something out on the table is always a lot more helpful than kind of keeping it a, I think they're doing this because of that, or I think Mm. I'm feeling this because of this, or even kind of feeling like, why aren't they doing what I'm telling them to do? These frustrations, if we kind of leave them unchecked and undiscussed, they tend to kind of just stay there and fester as you keep going forwards with that relationship. At the end of the day, we're not doing anyone any favors by not bringing this out. And and then if you bring it out and the other side of the patient, like they're not taking it or they're being defensive, then that's data too. And now you know like why these patterns are surviving, like with time. Yeah, like you mentioned, this if they're doing it with you, they probably do that with other people, right? Mm-hmm. So if say you have a patient who comes to you, always comes to their session, but doesn't do any of the, CB, the therapy homework and says, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that, or it's not working, it's not working. And if you're starting to feel frustrated or helpless, like that's probably something that other people in their lives feel too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you as a therapist like really have a great opportunity to be genuine, say, you know, I'm feeling helpless right now and I'm not quite sure what to do for you. Like, is there something else going on? Or you can talk about that genuinely. Whereas, you know, if you're friends with this person or if this is your sister or you don't have any obligation to be nice to them, you might just tell them off or you might just cut them out, right? 
and that's tragic. And like they don't really have an opportunity to get an interaction where they could get constructive feedback or really look at, you know, that wasn't my intent or this isn't really what I want to be doing. Or even maybe it is what they want to be doing and you can at least clarify that with them. But I think by ignoring these negative feelings or negative feelings of countertransference uh, because of a lot of shame or guilt that we might have as doctors to be the perfect doctor and to be always giving, um, that leaves a lot of things on the table that could have been addressed. Mm -hmm. And I think I agree with Amada that it, it ultimately does a disservice to the patient. This conversation got Ahmad thinking about how culture affects all aspects of medicine, especially psychiatry. I mean, the physician has a cultural background and the patient has a cultural background, and both sides are bringing parts of that culture into the interaction. In psychiatry specifically, there are a lot of kind of cultural models for understanding mental illness, and it's always kind of important to not dismiss that. So if someone kind of comes in and they're, they're saying like, oh, I'm not depressed, I'm just really tired because a witch put a, like a hex on me or something, it's, it's important to not completely dismiss it and, and instead try to align with them on something that you two have in common. So it's like, all right, regardless of what's causing this, you're here to get better, so let's help you do that. Thank you guys so much for of coming course. to join us. I Thanks really appreciate the conversation. We yeah. didn't get to talk about cats, but I hope you got some content. <laughs> <laughs> some usable content. If you like what you just heard, we hope it'll spur your own conversations. Ask a friend what inspires them or what they're grateful for. And let us know if you would like to record a conversation in our listening booth. Visit www.listeningbooth.info to learn more. Voices of Duke Health was created by Anton Zeiker and Jonathan Bay. The show is produced by Susanna Robertson. Theme music was composed by William Dawson, musician-in-residence at Duke University Hospital, and produced, arranged, performed, and recorded by Mark Simonson and Jack Fleischman. Additional music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. And special thanks to Duke Institute for Health Innovation for making this podcast possible.